Welcome to Exploring Hydrogen. Here we will learn about all the exciting advancements, opportunities and challenges of this nascent energy sector. We delve into how hydrogen can contribute to the decarbonisation of Australia and the world and investigate what it's going to take for adoption and into transportation, industry and society. I'm Andy Marsland. Welcome to our energising journey. I'm thrilled to welcome our guest today, Patrick Luxton, who's the General Manager of Hydrogen at Ampol Australia, where he's responsible for developing Ampol's hydrogen business. And for a lot of our Australian listeners, I'm sure you'll know Ampol extremely well, a huge organisation and a great future ahead of it in terms of the the energy transition. So that coupled with uh, Patrick's extensive experience in the sector, I'm sure we've got a fascinating discussion ahead of us. So a very warm welcome. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Great to be uh, talking to you. Let's start. Well, let's start from the start. Perhaps could you give us an overview of uh, of your career to this point? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was born and raised in New Zealand. So I started work in New Zealand and uh, started work for a private agricultural commodity trading company. So this is a fantastic training ground, managing imports and export operations, looking after storage and distribution, and, and getting to deal with customers on the ground as well. So a really great way to kick off my career. I then moved to Australia and uh, I took up a role with Origin Energy uh, in the LPG division. So that was really my introduction into the petroleum and energy sector. Uh, when I was in there, I was um, covering operations and then I moved into a, uh, a national supply role and, and really got a sense of Australia's uh, supply infrastructure and dynamics. And then for the last 15 years, I've been with, with Ampol and done a lot of different roles with Ampol, been very fortunate, had roles in sales, operations, infrastructure planning, uh, strategy and supply, and, and now, of course, hydrogen. Yeah, fantastic. When did you move into the hydrogen position? I actually came into the hydrogen role last year, and the Future Energy Group within Ampol got set up at the beginning of last year, or a little bit before then. So, Yeah, and it... From what I've been reading in, in the press, certainly a focus for the future. And I think uh, around May last year, the organisation announced your decarbonisation targets. Um, you, you able to explain to the listeners about those? Yeah, happy to. So um, maybe a little bit of history first. So Ampol has actually been in Australia for over 100 years. And the name actually comes from the original independent Australian Motorist Petrol Company. So that's where the Ampol name comes from. Formally came into being in 1936, but was operating before that. So um, 100% Australian. Uh, we're in the uh, ASX Top 100. And um, we're actually Australia's largest transport fuels provider. So we deliver about 25% of Australia's transport fuels. We've got over 1,800 branded sites across the country. And what most people probably don't realise, we actually deliver more fuels through to our business customers, which is outside of our retail network, than we do through the retail network itself. But most people associate us with those retail sites. We've also got operations in Singapore and Houston and New Zealand, and we're currently completing the acquisition of Z in New Zealand. That's New Zealand's largest fuel retailer. So hopefully this gets across the ditch as well. Yeah, I was, I was reading the, about that, and uh, I think that's going to take you up to somewhere around 2,400 fuel sites. 
Yeah, it's got a great network throughout New Zealand. We're really excited about that opportunity and, and broadening our business. So just you asked uh, about the, um, the decarbonisation strategy and, and future energy, which we released last year. So we've said the company's got a, a net zero target by 2040, but I think importantly, we've got some 25 and 2030 targets as well, which are really clear and are actually driving action within the business to reduce emissions now. So I think I can summarise it though, really the overall objective is really recognising that our trend, our customers are going to want to transition into lower emissions fuels and they'll want to decarbonise their businesses. And so really for us, it's about finding what those alternative forms of energy are going to be and being able to bring together offers that they're going to want. So when I think about what we do today, I think it's really exciting to think about how we can turn that into a future-facing business and, and think about how we help our customers go into those new forms of energy and certainly hydrogen is one of those parts yeah fantastic you covered a lot there and yeah it's interesting and just to reiterate that for the listeners that uh, the majority of your business is through the um, business to business network and i think you mentioned in one of your previous conversations you've got something like um, eighty thousand business customers if, if that's right yeah, we do. We say about because obviously it's a number that moves up and down. But yeah, roughly about 80,000 business customers pretty well across you know all spectrums of, of life and business you can imagine happening in Australia. So right from the big mining companies, the bus operators, local councils, waste collection companies, agriculture, farming, yeah, right across Australia as well. Yeah, good stuff. And where are you and your team at in, in that journey? Yeah, so I think the... And Paul had, had announced cutting emissions by 40%, as you touched on, by 2025, 50% by 2030, and net zero by 2040. So, yeah, how are things looking against those targets? Yeah, so uh, just a slight correction. So 25% is by 2025, and that's, uh, that's in the retail side. On the fuels and infrastructure side, we've got a slightly lower target, just recognising the nature of the business. So 5% there, but ultimately still getting to that end goal. We've got projects actively in the pipeline there. A lot of the first steps are around efficiency and, and renewable electricity, because those are uh, logical things to tackle in the first instance when we're thinking about our operations and, and how to reduce emissions. Yeah, and I think it's quite timely our discussion today with a recent announcement of the what they're calling the hydrogen super highway on the east coast of Australia. So essentially a, a renewable hydrogen refueling network, and that's a, a collaboration across the Queensland, the New South Wales, and Victorian state governments to roll out that network for heavy transport and logistics across the eastern seaboard. What's, um, if any, is Ampol's position on that and involvement? Yeah, that, that's a really, um, really exciting opportunity. Chibono, I was, was going to give you a little bit more backgrounding on sort of where hydrogen fits but, and come to that one because I think that that's right in the meat of, of, of exactly where we want to get to. So, Because uh, I think it's good to understand if you think about just understanding where Australia's emissions are coming from, and then it helps put everything in context from there. So about 18% of Australia's emissions are coming from that transport sector, and about two-thirds of that comes from light vehicles and then about a quarter from, from trucks. And what we see in Australia is, is partly because of our geography, but also because of some of our industry, we actually have a higher percent of emissions related to transport than, than many other um developed economies 
And so really when we're thinking about this decarbonisation task and we're looking at the transport sector, uh, the, ultimately there's really two ways you can go. Electrify or utilise hydrogen or a, or a hydrogen derivative. There are other renewable fuels in the mix as, as well that can help along that pathway. And so the ultimate goal that we see is really about finding that lowest cost pathway to decarbonise. Thinking from a vehicle perspective, and we can talk a bit more about this, but ultimately where we have a, a very high utilisation of, of asset or you, you need to carry a really large payload is where the fuel cell electric or the hydrogen fuel cell vehicle really makes sense. Shipping and aviation, I think there's ways to go. So in the, in the shipping world, there's certainly a lot of interest in ammonia as a bunker fuel. And you can see there's a lot of added benefits around that just because of the existing infrastructure and known handling characteristics in, in the supply chain. Around the light vehicles, we really think that battery electric makes sense. And when you think about energy efficiency and, and how we use energy, you know, if you could, if you can electrify, I mean, I think that's the right pathway to go down in terms of efficiency. So then you've got all that mix of battery electric electrification, you've got hydrogen fuel cell, and then obviously the biofuels and synthetic fuels. I think with the latter two, it's going to come down to, to cost and sustainability. And, and there's a lot to work through there. So ultimately finding that lowest cost pathway and sustainable pathway to the zero emissions. Would you be able to just explain to the listeners uh, what are biofuels? Yeah, sure. So uh, a biofuel is anything that's coming from a, a natural source, such as an animal fat, a vegetable oil, could be uh, probably one of the ones that uh, got a lot of attention previously was palm oil. So clearly that one doesn't fit in the sustainable camp. So that there's the, the balance for those is always about the sustainability element to it and how much is genuinely sustainable and how much you're starting to take from another source or divert resources that are better, say, in the food chain, for example. So that, that's always a bit of a challenge around some of those. And what do you think the split's going to be in the future? Have you got any side to that yet, or is it still sort of too early to, to tell? No, that's a really good question, and, and I don't honestly know the answer, otherwise I'd probably be doing something else. But there's a lot of work that the International Energy Agency's done, and so if you look at those, look at that data, they're projecting around 20% of, of that mix looks like it's hydrogen-based, and uh, then the, the balance into electricity and, and there's a, some biofuels in the mix there but maybe not quite as quite as uh, material once you get through the full transition so absent knowing the actual numbers i think they're good that's a good guide <laughs> good kind of ballpark yeah yeah is there anything else that you'd like to add or share with the listeners about the kind of position of, of hydrogen against the other fuel um, options yeah happy to talk a bit more about the I think heavy vehicles and sort of light vehicle choices, I think that's quite interesting in the sense we see there are actually some light vehicles available today with the, that people might be aware of. So uh, Toyota has a Mirai and, and Hyundai has a Nexo. They're both actually in Australia, those models. Not that you're likely to see them driving frequently on the roads because we don't have a, the uh, necessary refueling infrastructure yet. But if we if looking at that application of hydrogen, particularly in the transport sector, really it's it's that heavy heavy trucks, 
trains and most likely buses that make sense. And it's back to the, the things I talked about earlier, which is around the really heavy utilisation or handle payloads. So if you think about road haulage, you think about payloads, the maximum weight uh, trucks can carry on the road is actually capped and regulated. And so if they're having to give up freight to, say, carrying a battery, then you can see why the hydrogen starts to make sense. If you're having to carry 8, 10 tonnes of battery around, that's taking the place of freight you could have otherwise carried. And then just practical aspects like the utilisation factor, if you're uh, needing to refuel, hydrogen refuelling, very similar to the current diesel, you can do that in sort of 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Whereas if, you, if you're having to recharge really large batteries, that's a pretty long proposition, certainly looking at keeping vehicles moving, high utilisation vehicles, I think hydrogen's really the answer. There's also some just practical considerations and, and uh, it's to do with what the operator needs at their site. So what can they actually fit on their site in terms of if, if you're running a fleet of 100 plus buses and, and um, there may not be the practical ability to have all that recharging equipment or have that electrical load um, so there's just some some application issues around that in terms of what might work for one may not work for another. If we can just dig into that a little bit more, are the options that you're looking at for hydrogen refueling is that a back to back option? So as in a consistent refueling, you know, if you're in a bus depot that you've got buses one after another coming in in terms of getting the pressures back up there again to refuel. Yeah, well, you've done your homework, Andy, because you've struck on one of the key issues that has got to be solved technically. The refueling infrastructure and the process itself, there's plenty of technicalities in that and how you manage it and what scale you need to be at for that particular user. And ultimately, at the moment, it's really case by case. So it's understanding what that business needs, what the application is, and then matching the infrastructure to it. I think, though, as we get more mature and as we're able then to see more fleet moving, you'll get into some bigger applications where you'll have the ability to do more frequent refuels and there's, there's different ways you can achieve that. Where does Ampol's business extend to? And I'm thinking of international transportation. Do you, as a business, get in, involved in the refueling for, for shipping? So present, we don't do bunkering of ships. We actually, we previously did. We used to do bunkering of vessels in Australia. We actually sold that part of the business a number of years ago. But it's certainly something that we're familiar with and, and have an understanding of. And in the future, it's something we may well explore again. Perhaps we can loop, loop back around then to the uh, refueling or potential refueling network on the East Coast. Oh, in terms of, yes, the government... Uh, government announcement and yeah absolutely which is very exciting so i think for anyone who's who's been following the the a bit of the hydrogen press you'd understand that there's a lot of government support which is fantastic and really recognizing that there when you're coming from ground zero and you need help to get going the government is is going to be key in helping get established so it's really great to see the um Queensland and New South Wales, Victorian governments coming together and thinking about how they can support their first steps in establishing refuelling infrastructure. 
We've obviously got a very large network and existing highway sites and truck stops. So we think we're well placed and and been off to help leverage those assets to actually start that process of building refueling stations. So we're we're certainly a willing investor in those refueling stations. And it's it's a logical step in terms of moving towards making hydrogen more accessible. I think the piece that we're at at the moment, though, is really understanding where our existing customers are at and thinking about what their specific refueling needs are going to be. So we ultimately will be linking, think, working with our customers and linking our existing customers into these, these new supply points and thinking about how we can do that. So the, I think I'd add to, there's some really important lessons we can bring from the fuel supply chain. We've been in that game for over a hundred years and the things, safety, reliability are all key parts of how that works. We understand that really well. And we, when we think about the hydrogen, even when you're developing the initial hydrogen supply chains, for people to be able to rely on hydrogen and use it in their businesses, you're actually going to need to apply all those same principles. So that they know it's, it's a reliable fuel, it's available when they need it, and, and really the safety is, just has to be given. That that's, goes without saying. Yeah, absolutely. On the safety element, and are the sites that you have or that you're looking at for hydrogen refueling, do they need to be purpose-built or can they be existing sites, refueling sites that are adapted to hydrogen refueling? So I'm going to qualify my answer, Andy, by saying I'm not a I'm not an engineer, so I respect all the – there's a, a whole range of rules and regulations we'll need to work through in terms of making sure we've got the right uh, separation distances and hazardous zones that all go in with the normal planning around how you manage and handle dangerous goods. But our expectation is particularly our larger heavy-duty truck network will be able to accommodate hydrogen refueling sites uh, with appropriate planning. Yeah, um, we spoke about it a few moments ago, but Ampol has a fairly unique position in that you sit between the supply side, so the hydrogen production, and having those 80,000-plus business customers and 3 million consumers visiting your sites every year. How do you see the supply chain needing further development and what's Ampol's position in bringing those kind of supply and the demand along the journey? Yeah, re- really good call out. When it, it's really fascinating when you're just starting on the on this journey and it, it's literally almost, it is a blank canvas. But I, I, I can, again, I can reflect on where the fuel industry has got to and how that operates. And I think there'll be a lot of similarities for hydrogen there's over 80 hydrogen projects announced at the moment in Australia. Even if, let's say, pick a number, 40, 30, 20 get up, that's a lot of hydrogen production in different parts. And a lot of them aren't connected. The companies are driven by different rationales or reasons for having hydrogen produced. And so our view is there will be this network very similar to fuels, there's a network of producers and then there'll be a task there very clearly for linking the producers to the end customers and filling in the gaps if necessary. We have certainly believe in the future we'll, we'll have a role to play in hydrogen production 
but I think it'll be very much filling in, working out where the gaps are and think as that customer base grows, you can link those together. So I go back to we're driven by our customers' needs and talking to them about their operations, how they're going to decarbonize their businesses, and then working through the best way to do that. And then, yeah, with the, I'll call it a burgeoning hydrogen supply on the horizon, it looks like there's some great opportunities there. That's great. And what, what do you think's holding you back as a company at the moment from further development and getting closer to those decarbonization ambitions? Is there anything that, that is the key to unlocking that for uh, more rapid growth? I don't think we've been held back. And we're certainly, you know, the challenges there in front of us. But we are always mindful about investing in, in assets. Obviously, we've got shareholders and we're responsible too. And also, we're mindful that we only want to invest in assets that our customers need. And so, the reality is at the moment, there is actually very limited demand for hydrogen in the transport sector. Now, it's probably no surprise if we think about the factors there. There's certainly, you know, uh, the, the cost side, which is around the fuel, the infrastructure, the vehicles, when compared to the alternative of, of diesel. There's, I would say at the moment, I'd have to say there's a lack of vehicles available. If a transport operator genuinely wanted to consider hydrogen now, it is actually very hard for them to go and source a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle. And then on our side, we recognise there's a, a lack of refuelling infrastructure. So it's very hard for people to contemplate if you're running a business and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to use a hydrogen vehicle. And then you look around, there's nowhere to refuel it. Clearly, that it's, it's really hard to contemplate. So you mentioned the government announcement. We are working closely with government. And also, I mentioned those long list of Hydrogen projects, we're, we're keen to talk to all of those various proponents and really thinking about how we can close some of those gaps and get hydrogen rolling in the transport sector. Yes, we touched upon the technology improvements and cost reduction of equipment. Have you got any comments around the social license and engagement that we need to perhaps work on as an industry? Yeah, I think this is going to be really critical from a whole whole range of aspects. So firstly, just around the acceptance and understanding on firstly the role of, of hydrogen. So the production side, thinking about just the capacity of the renewable energy required to generate the hydrogen and where that's best placed. And this is all occurring at a time when there's this expanding demand for renewables, even even in the existing, trying to decarbonize the existing grid. So I think this is going to put a lot of pressure on even though we have wonderful wind and solar resources, it's the communities where those where they are and, and the scale of that development is huge. So a really big task there around engaging with those communities and making sure that's done in an appropriate way. The large-scale hydrogen production, people would probably be aware, when you're thinking about renewable hydrogen, you're normally talking about, uh, well, you're, sorry, you are talking about electrolysis, so using renewable electricity to create hydrogen that actually requires water so water in australia is a very sensitive issue naturally it's a very dry country and water resources are scarce so again i think this is a really key community issue that again it's it's about engagement working with the local communities making sure we understand where that water is coming from how it's being used i think all these are, are manageable 
But, yeah, really important that communities come on those journeys and have a say in how this, this takes place. And I hope that through that engagement also people can understand how uh, the why part of that conversation, so where hydrogen fits in and how it helps in terms of the decarbonisation. There's plenty of other factors we can touch on, but the community one is a really important one. Yeah, a comment that I can probably add uh, on the social licence side. and the So the, the Queensland government have bought a number of hydrogen cars and I've received, been involved in, in hydrogen in Queensland, you know, a few comments from people that hydrogen cars aren't perhaps the best use case for hydrogen. And as we've spoken about, it's much more likely that the heavy vehicle in terms of transportation is, is a better use case for it. But I think that those comments came from people that were sort of missing the point in that it, it's the social license and the social engagement as why those cars have been purchased that pe- when people see it feel it you know touch it understand it's safe and see it on the roads then that's gonna bring it into the public eye isn't it that this hydrogen journey is happening and it's happening now yeah that's a really good point you raise up i think you, you just can't beat actually seeing things the real assets actually happening and moving and i think it's and I agree. So in, in a pure kind of economic sense, passenger cars probably aren't the right uh, hydrogen or the best hydrogen fuel cell application. But in terms of that educational visibility and just understanding of, of that and how they work and, and things, I think it's a great thing that the government's able to do that, even if it's only in small numbers, because that is an important part of the process. So. Is Ampol getting involved in the uh, certification of hydrogen sources? And I know there's been a lot of work here in Australia and internationally about having some kind of global certification scheme. It's something that is an absolute must if you think about the evolution of of the hydrogen industry. And I'll just touch on that. Most people would be familiar with some of the debate around colours, so you hear the sort of green, blue. But actually where we need to get to is to really be focused on the carbon intensity because the end game is decarbonisation. There'll be so many different pathways to get there and we're going to have to use all of them. And so the certification part is is fundamental and key to, to making this all work and moving away from, I think, what are maybe useful colour coding to, to get us going, but moving us into a a more commercial zone of how it's actually going to work. And what else would you like to see more broadly to make the decarbonisation transition easier and quicker, perhaps in terms of policy changes or regulation, funding? So I just recognise, I think the government's doing a huge amount of work on the funding side in terms of uh, certainly around all the different programmes they're running, the production side, now moving into the refuelling infrastructure. So there's a lot happening and, and it's really important to recognise that. And it's not easy because if we knew the right answer, we would just do it. On the economic side, though, I, I think any time you look at these projects and naturally all the people we're dealing with, they're running businesses, they're trying to make business decisions. That's just the nature of how it is. It is evident that when you don't have a clear price on carbon, then it is a much higher hurdle you're trying to cross. And, and so I just call that out and draw on that from a reflecting on some of the European differences. However, I do appreciate that's a very 
complex and sensitive issue and certainly you know australia is blessed with a lot of natural resources so that's a tricky one to navigate and and comes there's a social cost for that but um certainly in the meantime what we are seeing is as as corporations committing to net zero targets they are actually drive that is driving activity that is driving positive change and it's forcing people to start thinking about taking what steps can they take when can they do it and that is actually kick-starting things so i think that's very positive in that regard and what jobs do you think are going to be highly sought after through this next phase yeah incredible opportunity if uh engineering and science degrees i, I mean you're just not going to be able to get enough of them so <laughs> anyone who's <laughs> anyone who's just at the end of high school and going and thinking about university and wondering what they should do engineering and I, I even think i don't think it matters which department of engineering either i think that it's just going to be so broad and and science degrees and then just because of the sheer scale of the activity around the renewable generation and what's required to create enough renewable energy and how it's going to be transmitted you know project managers people who make these actually make these things happen and and then by way of default, I think investment bankers and lawyers are going to be really busy as well because somehow the stuff all has got to come together and they, they, they're always involved. So, yeah, I, I really can't understate just the scale of investment and project activity and delivery that's got to occur around, around all the renewable energy side to allow the decarbonisation, not only in the grid, but transport sector alone. It's quite hard to get your head around. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think it's going to have that snowball effect from here on in. There's uh, been a, a lot to get to this point of where we are, but uh, yeah, looking up uphill and seeing what's uh, what's coming through in terms of the project volumes that are planned for the next few years, it's going to be incredible. On that, then, yeah, what are your personal hopes and dreams for for the sector? I think it would just be fantastic if if people were calling out Australia as being a leader in in the uptake of fuel cell electric vehicles for, for long haul and saying this is what can be done and I genuinely hope that can occur off the back of some really fantastic hydrogen projects we're going to be super well placed for that so with that we'll have to deliver a number of refueling stations so that'll be a great outcome as well and so you know maybe even as early as in the next five years we can see refueling stations vehicles on the road and people actually believe that that is a viable alternative uh, and that there is a pathway. There's a really important step in, in that decarbonisation story for transport. That's great. Is there anything else that we've not covered as yet, Patrick? Anything else that you want to share with the audience? I think I'd just say understanding that this is an enormous undertaking. Like you look around, you see all the vehicles moving around, they're all using liquid fossil fuels so if we think about you know ultimately the goal if we can get transport to net zero emissions and zero emissions vehicles it's just a really exciting journey and so you know wouldn't it be amazing if if the businesses were able to choose zero emissions vehicles that suit their operation and they're able to use those you know around australia i'd say to understand that no one's written the book for how this works, so it's going to be a lot of, we've got to try a lot of different things. It, it, we won't get it all right, 
but it's really important we get underway and have a crack. And then, you know, really follow the science as well. There's a lot of good science out there. The problems are solvable. There won't be one right answer. There'll be a whole mix of different pathways and technology and, and combinations. But yeah, follow the science. Let the science guide us on, on how best to get the right answer to the right application. I think those are some really good points to finish on there. And a number of the guests on the Exploring Hydrogen podcast have come to the same conclusion or made the same point of, yeah, just have, having a crack. We're not going to home run every time, but uh, yeah, we need to move through that kind of chicken or egg scenario of what comes first, the supply side or demand side. And as you say, uh, let the science lead us. It is a huge undertaking. It's the overhaul and perhaps rebuilding of a supply chain in terms of petrochemical fuel that's gone on for you know hundred years. That uh, we're trying to change as as quickly as possible. It's a huge undertaking, but we're seeing the momentum building now. So yeah, fantastic time ahead of us for all involved in the industry. Any other information that you'd like to share, or how can the audience perhaps follow what Ampol is doing? Uh, just a big thanks for been allowed to talk about hydrogen and and you know its role in decarbonizing and if people want to follow along follow on our webpage facebook instagram or even and follow us on linkedin so lots of different ways to follow the hydrogen journey with ampol that's great and we'll put links to all those in the show notes thanks again patrick for your time and all the good work that you and your team are doing i'm sure we'll cross paths in the very near future so um to our listeners, hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Thanks, Patrick. I'm Andy Marslin. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for joining us on the Hydrogen Journey. We welcome you to join us at our next episode. Please remember to subscribe and review the show and hope to see you next time. Bye.